Well, God bless you, brothers and sisters. Welcome to Fruit of the Vine Ministries. My name is John Davison. We're beginning our study in the book of Esther, and today I'm in chapter 1. If you've missed the introduction to this series, I highly recommend you, you go back and you watch that video so you know exactly where we're at. But this is going to be chapter 1. We're going to build a foundation on the book of Esther and what I call the protocol of intercession for the church, especially in these last days. So I'm going to start off in chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Now in the days of Azuaraz, also called Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 120 provinces in those days, the place where the king Ahasuerus sat on the royal throne on his kingdom was in Susa. Verse 4. He unveiled the riches of his glorious kingdom and the costly luxury of his greatness for many days, 180 days. When these days were completed, the king prepared a seven-day feast for all the people present, from the greatest to the least in the citadel of Susa. This feast was in the courtyard garden of the king's palace, where white and blue linen hanged, were fastened with cords of white and purple linen, to silver rings in columns of marble. The gold and silver-placed couches were on the mosaic pavement. It says there was mother of pearl and other costly stones, and they provided drinks in golden vessels. Now, I find this very interesting because the very first thing we see in the book of Esther is royalty. The book is a book which displays the royalty of a king. God's kingdom is a kingdom of royalty. Jesus says in the book of Revelation that we are a kingdom of priests and kings unto our God. And it even talks about in the Old Testament in several different areas, and even in the book of Revelation, it talks about the beauty and the splendor of the kingdom of God and the heavenly realms. Again, I mentioned this in the introduction to this series, that in the book of, of uh, uh, Ephesians, it says that we, the bride of Christ, are seated in the heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means that we live from a place of royalty. We live as kings and queens in this world. Kings and queens unto King Yeshua, King Jesus. And we need to understand that we are royalty. We need to understand that, that we are positioned in this world to represent a king who owns all, has all, is in all, works through everything. And he's speaking to his church just as he spoke here to those and he's revealing to these people, the king here, is revealing to the people his splendor, his royalty, his majesty. And he's trying to show them, he's saying, listen, this is who I am. This is where I speak from. I speak from a position of royalty. We need to have a reverence for God. God has shown us his goodness. He's shown us his greatness. He has saved us and he's placed us in the heavenly realms. And we need to have a reverence for our king. We need to have a reverence and a love, but a deep respect for God's position in our lives. And he shows us here all of his majesty. But in this story here in Esther, he's displaying this specifically before a certain group of people. And I want you to gather who this is, and I want you to collect all your thoughts and take them captive to Christ. I want you to imagine this in your mind. 
In verse 7, they provided drinks in golden vessels, being diverse one from another, and royal wine in abundance, by the expense of the king. Now listen, it was the king's expense, it was the king's good pleasure to give gifts to those who were feasting with him. And it continues on. Additionally, verse 9, Vashti the queen prepared a feast for the women in the royal house of King Ahasuerus. This is the first mention that, that we have of the king's queen. The queen is, is actually being allowed to host her own feast. So let me draw the picture for you here. God is having a feast in heaven. We know this. Scripture tells us that there will be the wedding supper of the Lamb. There will be the feast of the Lamb. But currently we are not at that feast. Father is, is the table. Everything is being, pre- being prepared. Jesus said, Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. If it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. He said, In my Father's house are many rooms or mansions, depending on your translation. That goes back to uh, the way that a Jewish man would raise his son. When the son went to go get married, what, what would happen is the son would actually build onto the family home and he would prepare a room he, off the side of the house. He would prepare a room for his bride and he would adorn that room or that section of the house according to what would be pleasing to his bride and what would be best for their home. And so when Jesus said, he said, listen, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would not have told you. Behold, I go to prepare a place for you. It was going all the way back to the tradition of the, the father and the son, the son building a room off of the parents' home. And so what Jesus is saying is he went into the heavenly realms. He's preparing a place. In other words, he's preparing a feast. He's preparing an intimate chamber for us in the heavenly realms. But right now... We on earth get to prepare a feast for him. We, through ministry, through sharing the word with unbelievers, through going out and proclaiming the love of God, through proclaiming the kingdom, that the kingdom is at hand, and for seeing people baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit. We are literally preparing a bride. We are the bride, but we're preparing a bride as well. For the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's why Jesus said to go into all the world and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit. We are preparing a bride. We're preparing a feast on earth, just as Jesus is preparing a feast in heaven. And so in the book of Esther, we have the king preparing a feast, and we have a queen, we have the bride, preparing a feast, right, for the other women, for the other ones that, that also are going to be able to, to be presented to the king in holiness and purity. We're going to get into that later in another chapter, praise God. And it says this, On the seven days, this is verse 10, On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, it says that he commanded these men, the seven eunuchs, that they attended to the needs of King Ahasuerus. So we have seven messengers or seven eunuchs that, that attend to the king. Their ear is attentive to the king and they are sent out and they do whatever the king says. Listen to the parallels here that the Holy Spirit, the revelation the Holy Spirit has shared with me on this. It says the seven eunuchs 
attend to the needs of the king. It says to bring Queen Vashti, to bring the bride before the king with the royal crown. Listen, to unveil her beauty to the people and the officials for she was beautiful. You have seven here, seven messengers being sent to the bride so that she would be ordained with a crown, a beautiful crown, because she was beautiful in the eyes of the king, and she was called to come before the king in beauty, arrayed in beauty, in spotless and and unblemished garments. Listen to the book of Revelation. I want you to hear... I want you to hear what, what, what happens here in the book of Revelation because I believe that there's a parallel here that we need to grab a hold of. Listen to this. In the book of Revelation, let me give you a little bit of a context. In the book of Revelation, okay, Jesus appears to John on the Isle of Patmos. This is John the disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. John's on the Isle of Patmos. He's, he's, he's off in prison on the Isle of Patmos. Jesus appears to him, and he appears to him in this mighty splendor. So the king appears in mighty splendor in the book of Revelation. But he makes a, he, he makes a statement here. It says this, right? It says in verse 20, The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the seven angels or messengers of the seven churches. And the seven candlesticks which you saw are the seven churches. Now you'll notice behind me that I have a menorah. Notice the menorah that's behind me has seven sticks. It's a seven stick menorah. This ties into, get this, the seven eunuchs, the seven messengers that the king sent to the queen. Listen now. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is going to John and he tells John, listen, I'm going to send seven messengers. The Greek word for angel, you can look this up in your concordance or online. The Greek word for angel simply means messenger. So there's seven messengers that Jesus is sending to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. What does he send to those seven churches? He sends them messages, messages, messages that specifically tell them how good they were doing, but it also tells them the areas where they're not spotless and blameless. In the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, that King Jesus sends seven messengers to his bride and tells them, you do this good, you do this good, you do this good, but nevertheless, I hold this against you. And he tells them, repent and get right before the king, right? Because the time is short and you're going to come into my presence. But if you don't, I'm going to take away your lampstand. This is what Jesus says to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And he says, I am he who lives, though I was dead. Verse 18. Look, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of Hades and death. He says, listen, I have some keys, and I'm going to share those keys with you. I'm going to send messages to my church to get my church out of death and disease, to get my church away from the falsehood and the fallacies. I'm going to call my church into my presence, what Jesus is saying here. I'm sending the seven messengers to get them spotless and blameless. But does the church listen in the book of Revelation? 
many times, and we're not going to get into this study right now in the book of Revelation, but I encourage you to read the seven letters to the seven churches. But there are times when the church does not repent. They don't repent of their practices of Jezebel. They don't repent of their, their practices of paganism and the things that they've allowed to creep into the church. So let me show you what happens to Queen Vashti. Because I want to show you the parallel of an unfaithful, an unservanthood, an unrepentant queen, an unrepentant bride of Jesus, the King. Listen to this. In the book of Esther, in the book of Esther, chapter 1, and it says this in verse 10. We'll read 10 again. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs attending the needs of the king to bring the queen, the bride, before the king with the royal crown to unveil her beauty to the people and the officials, for she was beautiful. But it says this in verse 12. But Queen Vashti, the bride, refused to come at the king's command delivered by the messengers, the eunuch. In the book of Revelation, Jesus calls the churches to a place of repentance many times. And there are times when the church refuses to listen. And as a king who has to follow protocol, the book of Isaiah says that when the courts are seated and the books are open, you see, the kingdom of God is a kingdom of law, a kingdom of legalities, Now, I'm not talking about for salvation purposes. We are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus alone. Romans 10.1 says, If you confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, that you shall be saved. So we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about intimacy. Queen Vashti, listen to this. Queen Vashti was already queen. She was already in a position of royalty. But at that point in time, she refused to obey. As queen, she refused to follow the protocol. She refused to follow the king's edicts and the king's orders. What did Jesus say? Go ye into all the world, making disciples, teaching them everything I've commanded you, and what? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. If you're a born-again follower of Yeshua, of Jesus the Messiah, this is a command of the king placed upon you, the bride of Christ. This is something that comes out of your heart and your love for the king. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commands. He says, listen now, you are my friend if you do what I command. Now listen, the word if means if you do it. He says, if you obey my commands, you are my friend, not just my bride, Okay, not just saved, but my friend. You're intimate with me. You understand my heart. You want to do what pleases me. But Queen Vashti was too concerned with her own livelihood. She was too concerned with her own feasting in this world. She was too concerned with her own crown, her own splendor. She was too concerned with her own career, her own job, her own possessions as the queen. And when the king called her, she said, no, I'm not coming. How many of us in the bride of Christ, how many of us in the church who live with Jesus as Messiah will not heed the call of simply going into the world and making disciples? Or what about this? What about when Jesus said, pick up your cross 
deny yourself and follow me. Pick up your cross, deny yourself and follow me. The Apostle Paul later writes, he says, listen, that we need to put off selfish ambition. All of these things hinder our walk and our intimacy with our king. And Queen Vashti here refuses to go before the king. Listen what happens when we're in disobedience to the king. Listen to what happens when, when we are not intimate with our king. Check this out, because I don't want you to miss this. This is so very important. Therefore the king grew very angry. Very angry. And his wrath burned within him. Then the king spoke to the wise men who understood the times. For in this way the king would speak before all who understood law and judgment. I want to take you to the book of Job for a moment. And I know that this is a very controversial topic, but I want to take you to the book of Job for a moment. I'm not going to, I'm not going to read every little aspect of it, but I'm going to put the scripture here up in front of you so that you can go back and you can read the interaction. You know, it says that Job was a righteous man before the Lord. It says that Job feared God. It said that Job did what was right in the eyes of God, and he was a righteous man. Nevertheless, nevertheless, it says that Satan went before God, right? He went before God, and God said, you know, where are you coming from? I've gone to and fro throughout the earth. God said, have you considered my servant Job? What is he doing? Is the king at this point speaking to somebody who knows the law to find out what can be done and what loopholes can be found? What, what areas in the life of Job are not in conformity with the will of God? And it says that Satan talked to God and said that, that he couldn't find anything in Job. That Job was basically a righteous man. And I'm paraphrasing, put my own emphasis on this. Satan tested God. Satan said, you know, well, well, you've put a hedge of protection around him. What does that mean? Legally, God, I have no access to Job. Legally, I've tried to find loopholes, but they're not there. I can't find them. God said, have you considered him? And Satan says, well, you know, you're protecting him. You're watching over him. But if he is struck with a disease... If you take away all of his possessions and his blessings, he will surely curse you to his face. God says, very well. Then you test him. You go. Try him out. See that he does not love me. But there's a hinge. There was an area in Job's life. It said that Job feared. There was a fear in Job's life. He was not standing in perfect love. And do you know that after everything transpired with Job, after everything happened to Job, the fear that Job had was gone. It was removed. There was a blemish. There was a, an area in Job that needed to be purified. And it was the one who was the expert in the law, who, who found a legal loophole before God, that he gained access in order to beat up one of the brides of God. Job was considered a righteous man. Nevertheless, in his relationship with God, there was a fear there. that he, he, There was an area of faith that he was lacking in. And so here, 
it says that the king spoke with those who were an expert in the law. And it says this, those nearest him, verse 14, it says those nearest him, it says, were Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Meraz, Mershina, and Memukan. They were the seven princes of Persia. So listen, can I back up what I'm saying any further? Maybe not with just Job. What about another scripture? I want to take you to the book of Daniel for just a moment. And I'm reading out of the King James. I'm going to take you to the book of Daniel for just a moment. Daniel's praying. This is Daniel chapter 10. Daniel's praying. It says this in verse 11. And he said unto me, right? Uh, you know what? Let's go a little bit further. Daniel's having a vision here. And it's in verse 7 it starts. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me saw no vision, but a quick, great quickening fell upon them, so that they fled to hid themselves. Therefore I was left alone and saw this great vision, and there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned me into corruption, and I retained no strength. Yet heard I the voice of the words, and when I heard the voice of the words, then was I in a deep sleep on my face, and my face towards the ground, and behold, a hand touched me which set me up upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, get this, get this, a man greatly beloved by God, Daniel. Just like Job, just like Queen Vashti was. She was loved by the king. Listen. Which set me upon my knees and upon the palms of my hands. And he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright. For unto thee... Am I now sent? And when he had stood, spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. Then he said unto me, Fear not. Again, here's that fear thing. Fear not, Daniel. For from the first day thou set thine face and thine heart to understand, and to chasten thyself before thy God. Thy words were heard, and I come for thy words. Listen to this. This is, this is the angel speaking to him. There's a warfare happening here. A warfare happening here. But I set, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia, the prince of Persia, withstood me twenty days. But lo, Michael, one of the chief angels, princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the king of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand what shall befall upon the people in the latter days. For yet the vision is for a latter time, or for many days. What's the vision here, brothers and sisters? The vision here is he's specifically talking about the end times. He's talking about the warfare that's going to take place, especially in the church, in the last days. Let me read to you again what happened with the king in Esther. Verse 13, chapter 1. Then the king spoke with the wise men who understood the times. Listen to what Daniel just said. Understanding. Daniel sought understanding. Those nearest to him, Karshena, and we will go through the names again, they were the seven princes of Persia. Who is, who is the king going to here? Is the king, is this a pattern of the king speaking to the experts in the law, the demonic realm, the princes of Persia, the ones who kill, steal, and destroy? Is God speaking to them in this? Concerning what must be done about the queen? 
seems to show that that is the case here. Listen. They were the seven princes of Persia and Media, and the king's closest confidants who met with the king and held the highest rank in his kingdom. According to the law, what should be done about the queen, Queen Vashti, because she did not obey the command of King Ahasuerus when it was delivered by the eunuchs, the messengers. Wow. And Memucan answered before the king. This is a, this is a prince of Persia. Speaks to the king just like, just like what happened in Job. Queen Vashti has wronged not only the king, but also all of the princes and all the people who are in the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For should this matter of the queen spread to all the wives, then they would look with contempt on their husbands when it is reported that King Ahasuerus commanded the queen to be brought before him, but she never came. Jesus makes a statement. And he says this. He says that there's going to be a time when many people will say to him, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all of these things in your name? Didn't we do all these things in your name? But what does he say? He says, away from me, you who practice iniquity, for I never knew you. He connects the practice of disobedience and lawlessness with not knowing him. One who walks in sin and in disobedience to God and calls themselves a Christian truly does not know the Father. John chapter 17, verse 3, Jesus said that this is eternal life, that they would know the Father. That term know means intimacy. It means, literally, it's a bedroom term. It means intercourse. It means that deep of a relationship with the Father. And here you have a queen, okay, a bride, who is in disobedience to her king, who is not following protocol, who is not following the patterns that have been laid out in the law. And because of such, she finds herself being accused by the princes of Persia, by the demonic realm. She finds herself being accused by the demonic realm and breaking the law. It, it says in, in, the book, in one of the books of John, it says that sin is lawlessness. Listen to this again. Sin is lawlessness. And Queen Vashti here is clearly not following protocol. And so it opens up a door. Sin opens up a door in the life of a believer for the demonic realm to come in and accuse you before God, before the Father. And if we don't deal with sin in our lives, it is a downward spiral. And remember what Jesus said. Away from me, you who practice iniquity, literally lawlessness, for I never knew you. You don't know me. You might say, yes, I know Jesus, but if you're living in sin and disobedience to the king, Jesus says, listen, there's going to come a time, just like the parable of the ten virgins, there's going to be a time where your oil is going to be completely gone. Your wicks will not be trimmed. And the bridegroom will come, as the scripture tells us. And it says that those who are prepared will go in, and the door will be shut, right? And the parable tells us this. It says that those who did not bring their oil, those who do not trim their wick, it says that they knocked, but he says, I, I don't know you. 
The door's already shut. I'm sorry, the time is over. You missed it. You missed it. And listen to what happens to Queen Vashti. Verse 19, chapter 1. If it pleases the king, let a royal decree be sent by him, and let it be written in the laws of the Persians and the Medes that it may not be altered, that the bride, Vashti, the queen, can never enter into the presence of the king, and that the king will give her royal position to another, who is better, more obedient, more loving, and more intimate with the king. When the king's decree that he shall make is proclaimed throughout all his empire, for it is vast, then all the wives shall give honor to their husbands, both the prominent and the lowly. Listen to this. Verse 21. The suggestion pleased the king and the princes, so the king did according to the word of Memuken. He sent letters to the king's provinces. Again, what's he doing here? He sent letters. The word for epistle in the New Testament. So if you're reading your King James, it says, let's say, for example, the epistle of Paul the Apostle to the Corinthians. The word, the Greek word for epistle means letter. It just means the letter of Paul the Apostle. The entire New Testament are letters. They're letters. It's awesome. God sends us his love letters through the Holy Spirit. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is breathed by the Holy Spirit. It's not the written word of God. It's the breathed word of God. It's God speaking. God commanding his bride and showing his bride how to enter his presence properly. It says that we boldly come before the throne of grace. We boldly come into the Holy of Holies. We boldly come, what? As pure, spotless, and blameless. But we can spin out. We can get into a, a false understanding of what grace is. We can think that grace just covers everything. And we can live our lives however we want to in this day and age. And Jesus just died and that's just good and I can just go on and do what I want. But God sent letters to us and he instructs us how to represent him as his queen, as his bride on earth before we meet him in that great wedding supper of the Lamb. And we can sit before him what in spotless and blameless garments. Jesus told a parable about a wedding, a wedding banquet. I believe it's Matthew 22, if I re- recall. Um, and, and we'll put the scripture up here to, to verify that as well. But he said that, listen, the king called a great banquet. And, and in that, and you can go through and read the entire parable, but towards the end of the parable, it says that, that there were many people that were brought into the banquet. It says, but there were some that came that didn't have wedding garments on. They weren't wearing the proper, they weren't spotless and blameless. And it says that they were cast out from the presence, from the king's feast. They were cast out because they didn't have the right garments on. Wow. Listen to what it says. Esther 1.22. He sent epistles, letters, into all the king's provinces. We'll call it the king's churches. In the script of the province, in the language of every people group, bearing the message in the languages of his people that each man should rule over his own house. What does it say? What does it say in Timothy and in other areas about elders and teachers in the the word, in the church? It says that they must be able 
to be a man, but of one woman. It says that his own house must be first in order. For if his own house is not in order, how can he govern, how can he rule over, how can he rightly discern over the churches and the people of God? His own house must be in order. And it says this, the king sent letters what in each man's language. Why is the New Testament written in Greek? Why is it in Hebrew or Aramaic for that matter? Why is it in Greek? Because Greek, those letters, Greek was the common language of the day. The Romans had supreme rule, uh, even so much so that they renamed the provinces of Israel, uh, the northern and southern tribe kingdoms, uh, Judea, Samaria. They were all renamed Palestine because the Romans decided to name that, rename that area. It was part of their conquest. That's what they did. When they came into an area, they would rename it, and then they would introduce their customs, their pagan practices into that area. Why did they do that? Because they wanted to defile the people of their ways and introduce them to Greek ways, Roman ways, so that it would spread out. And what does Scripture say? A little leaven, a little sin, leavens the whole lump. In other words, a little sin in your life, a little sin in the body of Christ, a little thing that we say, well, God just covers that. I don't have to worry about it. A little sin will permeate you, your family, your home, and then the church that you're a part of. And so God sent letters to show us how to deal with sin in our lives, to give us the protocol of how we are to live as a bride, to teach us how we should live holy, godly, and upright lives in this present age. Listen, Scripture tells us very clearly about what the definition of grace is. The grace of God has appeared once to all men, what it teaches us to say no to ungodliness, and that we would live upright, godly, and holy, holy lives in this present day and age. And God sent us the letters in the Greek language because that was the the language of the day. So why do we have all these translations today? Well, for example, I have a MEV in my hand now. Um, I have an early 80s uh, NIV in front of me. I have a King James. I also have a New King James. I have a complete Jewish Bible. I have a Family Heritage Bible. Why do I have all of these different translations in, in all of these different languages? Is it God giving us His love letters in the language of all the people? Is it the King giving us His love letters, get this, to His bride in the language that she understands so that she could clearly understand, and as Jesus said, know our Father. Is that it? I believe so. That's why it's so important for us to understand the Word of God. So this is chapter 1 of the book of Esther. I hope it's encouraged you and stirred you to search out the deep things of God. Join me for chapter 2 in the next installment of Esther, Protocol to Intercession. God bless you and keep you in Messiah Jesus, with all strength and might and favor in the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would walk holy and blameless before your God, especially in these last days. Just as Jude said, pulling others from the fire and being filled with the love of God and then giving away what you've received freely. So freely you have received, 
now that you've received this word today, freely give it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Strength for the Hour. Our hope is that you have received rest, revelation, edification, sanctification, and truth. To learn more about this ministry and to be further strengthened in your faith, you can visit us at our website, www.fruitofthevine.wix.com forward slash Fruit of the Vine. There you'll find a link to our Facebook and YouTube. If you'd like to send us a letter, please write to Fruit of the Vine Ministries, P.O. Box 222, Louisville, Ohio, 44641. And for a final word of encouragement, here again is John Davidson. Thanks, Alex. You know, God anointed the New Testament writers, and the Holy Spirit spoke through them, and says this in the book of Hebrews, chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing of the soul and the spirit, the joints and the marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And Jesus says this in the book of Revelation, chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, listen, I know your deeds. See, I place before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Well, praise God, brothers and sisters, that the word of God was able to penetrate into our hearts today and that the Lord gave us strength through his message as he spoke the word through his word by his Holy Spirit to you where you're at in your home and in your atmosphere. So I just thank you so much for taking your time and listening to the Word of God with us today. We hope that you've been blessed, encouraged, and strengthened by the Word of God. So thank you so much. God bless you and keep you in His perfect peace. In Jesus' mighty name, Shalom. Shalom.